So, this is the last week of our Gospel Restoration Series. And uh, in this series, we've been, for the last 10 weeks, we've been telling the story of the Gospel, start to finish, creation to, to um, you know, whatever comes at the end. And, uh, and so we've been telling the story. And this being the last week, uh, we wanted to actually kind of pause and tell the whole story all at once. And uh, so normally when I preach, uh, I have just a, a couple of lines worth of notes just to keep me on track. Not very much. I'm kind of, you know, flying by the seat of my pants and, and, uh, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so, uh, but this week we've got it. We, we really wanted to tell the story. So we've, we've scripted it all out and we're going to tell you a story this morning. So I'm going to invite, uh, Jamie and Jackson up. They're going to help me tell the story this morning. And, um, and it's, it's, it's going to be, uh, something interesting. So now here's the danger of, of telling you all a story, doing a little storytelling this morning is that in a, in a, in a dimly lit, lit room on a misty day, uh, where you guys are short on sleep, uh, this might become sort of a bedtime story. So everybody do this, everybody kind of wake up, right? Get, get yourself awake and, and allow us to tell you a story. Now I don't want to, I don't want to ruin it for you, but I'll just say this. I got, I got a review from first service from a three-year-old girl who walked up to me and said, that was amazing. <laughs> so just saying, That's why you're three. <laughs> so three-year-olds are loving this. Oops. I dropped my water. Okay. So this is the story. This is the gospel. And you know, at the risk of, of, of sounding cliche, uh, it really is honestly the greatest story ever told. And um, it's a powerful, powerful message that the gospel is not simply, um, you know, Jesus wants you to change your life and he died for you. So slip up your hand and say a quick prayer and, and everything's good. It's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. And, and when we rob the greatest story of, of, of the, that the world has ever told, when we rob that story of the story... Something gets lost, and so we're trying to restore the gospel story back to its fullness in this. So, listen to this. <clears throat> Before there was time, there was God. We first meet God as he begins his creative work. Where there once was nothing, God spoke, the Spirit hovered, and the Word echoed out into the nothing. A light in the darkness. Heaven Earth, water, darkness, light, day, night, sky, land, oceans, vegetation, universe, seasons, time, sun, moon, sea creatures, birds, animals, and insects. As God surveys his handiwork, it pleases him. This is good, he says. But he's not finished yet. He saves his best work for last. He rolls up his sleeves, pulls out all the stops, and creates us, humans. He gives his human creations a little something extra. The secret sauce that sets us apart from the rest of the created order. He places in every man, woman, boy, and girl... A piece of himself. We are to be the bearers of his image in this world. 
Our vocation, hardwired into our very DNA, will be to reflect the image of the Almighty God to each other so that we all might reflect glory and honor back to God. He looks at us and he says, this is very good. And then rest, satisfaction. All creation was perfect. God's glory filled the earth. Earth was paradise in every sense of the word. He placed the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, in a garden he prepared specifically for them. This first couple loved each other, and they were naked and completely unashamed. In the garden, God cared for them, walked with them, talked with them, and enjoyed loving relationship with them. But it would not last. Because he loved his human creations so much, God gave them something else, a gift that was an act of pure love. He gave them a choice. In the middle of the garden, God planted the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve could trust God, obey him in everything, and retain their purity and innocence. Or they could eat the tree and lose that innocence. God could have forced this decision on them, but he wanted them to lovingly choose him the way he chose them. One day, the one who is the enemy of God and the killer of men approached them in the form of a serpent and tempted them to eat the forbidden fruit. He lied to them and told them that they would become godlike if they disobeyed God. The fruit was beautiful looked delicious, and had that added bonus of turning them into gods. So Adam and Eve decided to eat it. After they finished their delicious snack, they looked at each other and realized something was terribly wrong. They were seeing things and thinking things they had never seen or thought before. Everything was different. Moments ago, they knew only peace and freedom, Confidence and courage, love and joy. But now, now they were flooded with guilt and shame, anxiety and fear, distrust and deep sorrow. Earlier, they walked proudly through the garden as God's unique image bearers. But now, they rushed to cover themselves up. Adam and Eve hid from God, but God called for them and found them. He told them that the feelings they had were accurate. Everything was different. Their beautiful, life-giving relationship with God was so broken. Try as they might, they would never be able to repair it themselves. There would be no more intimate exchanges with the Creator of all things. And more than that, all creation was now different. Their sin had broken everything. Relationships would be difficult. Pain and suffering would be normal. The earth would need to be tamed through hard work in order for it to give up its food, and death would be certain. From that moment, God's kingdom was fractured, and there was now a great divide between the realm of humans and the realm of God. It was a dark day indeed, but God at his very core is love, and love always finds a way.
time marched on and God's creation went from broke to broker. Murder, all kinds of wickedness, warnings and a great flood, arrogance in human ability and division of languages. Tribes grew into nations, sin and depravity ruled the day, and there was no hope in sight. A few millennia passed, and then God broke into time and did something momentous. He had a plan that had been slow cooking for quite some time, a plan to set all the broken things right again. Now it was time to turn the heat up on that plan and get things moving. So God chose a man and made a covenant with him, a promise. Abraham was 75 years old when God spoke to him. He lived as a nomad in Haran, which is Syria today, with his wife Sarah, and they were childless. He had no land, no children, and no future. He was the perfect person for God to use to launch his big plan. God told Abraham, Leave your country and your family and go to the land I will show you. I will make of your children a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and wherever or anyone who dishonors you, I will curse, and in, all, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham obeyed God and set out for this new land. But years went by and still no children. Abraham became discouraged, so God met with him again. This time he spoke to him and told him to look up at the night sky. Number the stars. If you are able to number them, like those stars, your descendants will be countless. So Abraham believed God, and that's all it took for God to see Abraham as righteous. God was faithful in his covenant and blessed this couple with a miracle son when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. God continued his covenant faithfulness and grew this little family of three into a great nation. 400 years after the birth of Isaac. Abraham's tiny family would become the rather large nation of Israel. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob, whose name would be changed to Israel. Israel and his children would relocate to Egypt to find relief from a devastating famine. In Egypt, the families of the twelve sons of Israel would grow to be the twelve tribes of Israel, and after a few centuries, the nation of Israel. While in Egypt, the Israelites would be forced into 200 years of slave labor under the cruel hand of Egypt's Pharaoh. But God had world-changing plans for this unlikely nation. So he raised up an Israelite leader by the name of Moses. Moses would stand before the Pharaoh and represent the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would plead on behalf of his countrymen for Pharaoh to give Israel their freedom so they could return to the land promised to Abraham. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened toward Israel and her God. So God sent a series of plagues to force Pharaoh to grant freedom to the Israelites. The final plague was the death of the firstborn son 
of all families in Egypt that were not faithful to God. Faithful families were instructed to sacrifice a lamb and brush its blood on the doorposts of their homes. If the Lord's death angel saw the blood on those doorposts, he would pass over that house. The memory of this dark night is still celebrated in the Passover feast. Pharaoh finally relented and Israel was free. A nation of several million former slaves joyfully marched away from Egypt toward their promised land. On the journey, God passed down his laws to Moses. These laws would set Israel apart from the other nations of the world and point the faithful toward God. There were worship and sacrificial laws, health and hygiene laws, and laws that laid out a moral code for God's people. The intent of the law was to show Israel how to love and worship God exclusively and how to love the rest of God's image-bearing creation. You see, the big plan that God had for Israel, the reason he set them free, gave them their own land, and guided them with his law. Israel was to be God's light to the nations. This nation of Abraham's kids were to be a holy priesthood, the means for the rest of the world to discover that the God who created them still loved them and wanted to make them all members of his family. The centuries ticked by, and Israel matured into a full-fledged nation, a nation of kings and advisors, of grand palaces and a glorious temple, priests and soldiers, prophets and faithful followers of God, and unfortunately, false prophets and worshipers of counterfeit gods. God's chosen nation found themselves far from God and far from his purposes for them. God became displeased. There were three primary things that fueled God's wrath. First, they weren't faithful to God's law or the intent of God's law. Many were disobedient and rebelled against the law. Many others turned to law-keeping as an idol. They either disregarded the law or they elevated it so high that they traded heartfelt faithfulness for cold, harsh religion. The law that God gave to keep his children close was distorted to the point that it actually increased the distance between God and Israel. Second, rather than being a light to the nations, they allowed the darkness of the nations to dim their own light. Idolatry was rampant. The worship of false gods became normal, and God became jealous. Not the sinful jealousy that comes from pride and ego, but the righteous jealousy of a husband who discovers a predator has designs on his bride. This would not stand. Finally, Israel forgot her purpose. Instead of sharing the light of God's love and truth with the nations, they thought it better to keep the light to themselves. Rather than being God's chosen people through whom he would bless the nations, they selfishly chose to be God's chosen people to the exclusion of the other nations of the earth. Israel was called to be faithful to God and worship him alone. Strike one. They were called to be holy and obedient children of God. Strike two. They were called to proclaim the faithfulness of God to the world. Strike three. So God sent many prophets to preach, write, and prophesy that if Israel didn't turn back to God and his purposes, 
he would allow them to be conquered by more powerful nations. They would be literally exiled and shamed as a nation. God would also remove his presence, so they would be spiritually exiled and lost as a nation. But if they would turn back to God, he would forgive them and bring healing to his family. You see, if is a word packed full of love and possibility. The prophets also told of a king, a deliverer, a messiah who would return Israel to her former glory and lead them into a new era where God would reign victoriously on earth. Israel ignored the warnings and experienced brutal defeat and exile, first at the hand of the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, and finally Rome. Israel would experience around 800 years of national and spiritual exile. They became desperate for the Messiah, but they were totally unprepared for the Messiah God would send. It had been nearly 1,500 years since God had given his law to Moses. Israel was now occupied by Roman officials and Roman military. Between the cruelty of the officials, the heavy burden of Roman taxes, and the utter disregard that Rome had for their traditions, Israel had had enough. But it wasn't just Rome. Israel couldn't figure out who they were supposed to be. Many thought the best way to become God's powerful people again was through force, sneak attacks on Roman soldiers, and talk of revolution. Surely, if they were courageous and smart enough, things could change. Others believed if Israel was to be strong again, it would happen through their religion. Just make sure you're obeying all of God's laws and punishing those who aren't. In fact, God's law isn't strict enough, so let's add law upon law upon law. But all the violence and law-keeping was too heavy to bear. The people of Israel were hungry for something different. It was at that moment in history that God raised up a couple of new prophets with an exciting message. The first, John the Baptizer, was an odd sort of fellow, a kind of wild man who didn't seem to care even a little what people thought of him. And people flooded into the wilderness by the thousands to hear his message. Repent. God's kingdom is here now. He called people to humble themselves before God and be baptized in the river to have their sins forgiven. Some would argue that baptism was for foreigners, but they were God's chosen descendants of Abraham. You think God cares who was in your family tree? God could turn these rocks into Abraham's descendants. He also announced another greater than himself who was about to arrive. I'm baptizing you with water right now. But just wait. Someone else is coming soon, and he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You all think I'm something, but I'm not even good enough to look after the next guy's shoes. John's words came true. God sent a second prophet whose words were more convincing 
and the wonders he performed were a sight to behold. His name was Jesus of Nazareth, and the crowds couldn't get enough of him. He taught with an authority that was different from any teacher they'd ever heard. When John was arrested and killed for his bold speech, Jesus continued John's kingdom message. Repent. God's kingdom is here now. He reminded them what it looked like to live as the people of God. And Jesus didn't seek out the powerful or the religious. No, he gravitated to normal, everyday people. He laughed a lot, loved kids, and enjoyed sharing meals with known sinners. He told powerful little stories that let people know that God was up to something new and revolutionary. If they wanted to be included, it would require more than being from Israel. No, if they wanted to be citizens of this new kingdom, they would need to truly be Israel. And that only happened through faith. Word spread throughout Israel. God had remembered his people and sent a great prophet. Could it be that their long wait was over? Is it possible that Jesus is the Messiah? But not everyone was thrilled about Jesus. In fact, some were downright disturbed. This new prophet was saying and doing some things that didn't seem right. Jesus was casting demons out of people. Who has the power to do that? Only God. He didn't just heal the sick. He was also forgiving sins. Who does he think he is? Only God forgives sins. One day, he showed up at the temple and flipped out. He was throwing tables and driving people out who were there only there for greedy profit. What makes him think he's got authority in the house of God? Some of his followers were calling him the son of God, and he let them. Is he really claiming to be God? Messiah is one thing, but God... Jesus has to go. So the priests had Jesus arrested and put him on trial and found him guilty of disturbing their peace. Then they sent him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to be executed. Now, while Pilate could find no reason to kill Jesus, this whole ordeal was disturbing his peace as well. The priests had stirred the crowds into a frenzy, and they cried out to Pilate, Crucify him! So Pilate signed the order, And they nailed Jesus to a wooden cross and waited for him to die. As Jesus' blood flowed down the wooden beams, many watched. Some insulted him and laughed, while others wept for him. This man, who just a few days earlier was hailed as a national hero, was now a national scandal. Jesus of Nazareth died on that Roman cross. His last words, it is finished. Appropriate words. Jesus was dead. All that he had been trying to accomplish, all the hopes and dreams that had been placed in him, finished. But sometimes things aren't as they seem. Everyone who had witnessed Jesus' death had actually witnessed so much more. Jesus' life had not been taken from him. 
He offered it freely as a sacrifice to pay the sin debt of all the world's misguided image bearers. His life was the only life that could accomplish that because his life was perfect. Turns out, Jesus really was God in the flesh. God's big plan to set his creation right again had just taken a massive leap forward. Jesus, the Messiah, had not come to defeat Rome. He had his sights set on something much bigger. The Messiah had come to defeat the true enemy of God's people, sin. The relationship between God and humans that had been broken by sin way back in the garden was now completely restored thanks to Jesus. God saw that beautiful blood on those wooden posts and decided to pass over once again. Sinful humans could have relationship with a holy God once more. Jesus had paid the price for our sins once and for all. See, love always finds a way. Jesus was dead and buried, but he was just getting started. He had another enemy in his sights, death. And so three days after he died, he did the unthinkable, the impossible. He raised himself from the dead. The body that was once dead was now alive. He had been executed in shame and now was raised in glory. By defeating death, Jesus proves beyond a doubt that he is God, Israel's true king. From that point forward, he wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth, the great prophet. To his followers, he would forever be Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. But there was also more to the resurrection than you might think. It wasn't only a powerful miracle of God, not just the raising of one man. The resurrection was a sneak peek into God's coming resurrection kingdom. Jesus was the first, but there would be so many more. Christ followers would be able to enjoy spiritual resurrection lives now and could look forward to a physical resurrection eternity, where they and the rest of creation will be bathed in the glory of the creator of all things. Resurrection is victory and life, glory and hope. Jesus, the risen Savior, gathered his disciples together in his final appearance to them and gave them instructions. I have been given all authority over heaven and earth. Knowing that, go throughout the whole world, make disciples and baptize them. Teach them everything I taught you. Don't be afraid, though. I will always be with you. Shortly after, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to live inside his followers. They would be able to live lives personally guided by God uniquely gifted for his kingdom work, and empowered to walk in faithfulness. This group of disciples began to grow and quickly spread to other countries. God had united the whole world together into one family through Jesus Christ. No one was left out. It didn't matter where you were born or who your parents were. God didn't care about whether you were a boy or a girl or about the color of your skin. Anybody could be a kingdom citizen 
so long as they put their faith in Jesus. And what about God restoring Israel to power? Well, he did, but not the way anybody expected. God's plan all along was that Abraham's promised children were so by faith, not just by blood. Through faith, anyone in the world could become adopted as full-fledged heirs of Abraham and children of the promise. The church is the true Israel. God had indeed blessed all earth's families through Abraham's kids. Now it's up to us to live as children of God, sharing our faith with as many as God allows. There's so much kingdom work to do because God's not finished yet. He has one last enemy to defeat. So we come to the final chapter of our story. So what's next in God's big plan for his people? He gave the Apostle John a glimpse of what we might have to hope for. In Revelation 21 and 22, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life. The leaves of the tree were, from the, were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the, excuse me, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. And the Lamb said to me, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Surely I am coming soon. You see, the creator God will restore all of humanity and all creation to the way he intended them to be. The final enemy will be defeated. Evil himself, the enemy of God and the killer of men. Humans will be truly human, more human than they've ever been before because we will finally bear God's image clearly and gloriously. All of creation in their sheer existence will bear witness to the love and majesty of God. 
Justice and love will rule the day. This broken world will finally be set right. Look at this video. You know, I'm a, I, uh, couple, I don't have a lot to say, but I do, I do just want to acknowledge the fact that we, uh, we, I lived in Tennessee and boy, did we grieve with you guys when, uh, stuff happened, what happened in Newtown and, um, Sandy Hook and, uh, broke my heart and we drove through there today and it broke my heart a little bit more. And, uh, I just, you know, the, so impossible, I think, to deny that the world is just a broken place. There is a, there's something wrong here. Um, and, uh, and yet, uh, there's so much beauty. There's so much goodness. And I love when, when the bombing happened in Boston. And I don't know if you guys heard that, that uh, what Mr. Rogers said. Uh, do you know the quote I'm talking about? Uh, somebody retweeted it or something where they said, Mr. Rogers uh, said, he said, you know, he wanted kids to know whenever you see something bad happen on television, be sure and look for all the people who are helping. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Yes, there is darkness in the world, but there is something so much stronger than that darkness, right? Um, with the books that I, I've, I've written, like um, some parents have like uh, emailed me and said, you know, are these kids' books appropriate for my kids? They seem kind of scary at times, you know. And, and my thing is, like, I think that, uh, yeah, they can be scary, uh, but kids know the world is scary. Kids know the world is broken from a very early age. And uh, they need to know that something is stronger than the scariness in the world. You know, so to deny the existence of it is to discredit them and what they know to be true. And so uh, there's this beautiful G.K. Chesterton quote where he said, Fairy tales don't teach children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales teach children that dragons can be beaten. Um, and so here we are telling this true, tall tale of the coming of Christ into the world. You know, this, this story that seems so good that it, it's almost like it's too good not to be true. That there really is a God. That He really does love you. That He really did stoop to the earth and put on flesh so that He would be familiar with our sorrow. So that as we walk through the world and we feel pain and we feel our hearts breaking, we know that the very God who spoke the universe into being is familiar with that sorrow. There's communion in it, right? And so... uh so uh, I guess the older that I get, the more I look out at the, I see the darkness in the world, but I acknowledge that there's so much beauty too. And there, it reminds me, there's this wonderful passage at the, in the Lord of the Rings. I talk about this a lot. But uh, where Samwise and Frodo are, are on their journey, they're so tired. And they're surrounded by all this darkness. And, uh, and it says that, uh, that Samwise looks up and he sees the clouds part for just a second. And he sees a single star twinkle there for a moment. It says the thought came to him that the shadow is only a small and a passing thing. That there is light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. So, please be encouraged. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm not a preacher. I'm a songwriter. After the last tear falls, after the last secret's told, after the last bullet tears through flesh and bone.
the boulevard After the last year that's just too hard There is love, 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 love There is love, 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 love There is love After the last discreet Save some things after the last brutal job from a poison tongue. After the last dirty politician, after the last meal down at the mission, after the last lonely night in prison. the gospel. That's the big story. That's the, the old, old story that people have told forever and ever. And it's just as true and just as powerful and just as relevant today as it ever was. 
And um, God, the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, the God who has been faithful to his promise and is, is continuing to be faithful to his promise, rings his message out to your hearts this morning. That same message that John spoke and that Jesus spoke, and he's saying to you this morning, turn back to me. The kingdom is here. It's right now. It's right now. And he wants you to be a citizen of that kingdom. And I want to challenge you to live up, to step up to what God has called you to do, to be what he has called you to be, his faithful people, not his perfect people. We'll never be his perfect people, but we can be his faithful people. And all of us can do that, especially when we're locking arms with each other and we're working with God to defeat that last enemy together. Let's do that. Let's do that. If you want to sum up the gospel, you, can't, you don't have time to tell the whole story. You want to sum it up into just a nutshell, it's this right here. That Jesus, our Messiah, has come. He has established his kingdom, and he is making all things new. He's making all things new. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Pray with me. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for your word today. We thank you uh, for such a beautiful story. A true story, a true tale of uh, the epic fullness of your love. And um, we thank you for not giving up on us. We thank you for, instead, you chased after us. And, um, and so we beg you this morning to catch us, to wrap us up into your love, and to use us in your kingdom. And we anxiously await the day when all things are set right and all things are made new again. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God is good. Amen. Amen. Hey, will you do me a favor and just uh, give a little round of applause to our story readers this morning? They did a good job. And, um, and then give a, give a big round of applause to the author and finisher of our faith, uh, Jesus Christ. And um, that's awesome.